This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Rabbi shrahli sadri wa yasudri amya. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 2, and we will be discussing the Ridda Wars, also known as the Wars of Apostasy. Inshallah, we will cover the reasons behind the war, try to clear up some misconceptions that people have. We'll discuss Abu Bakr's plan for the war. We will also discuss the most important battle of this war, which was the Battle of Yamama between Musaylam al-Kadhab and Khalid ibn Walid. This, inshallah, will be a very exciting and entertaining episode, but most importantly, I hope it will be educational for you, inshallah. If you want to know more about this episode and about these events, find the show notes, which are available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash ridda, R-I-D-D-A, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash ridda for the show notes to this episode. So with that, here we go with Islamic History Podcast, Season 2. Episode 2. So let's recap where we left off and where we are so far. In the last episode, we discussed how during the prophet's last days, when it became evident that he was sick and he wasn't going to be getting better anytime soon, different parts of the Muslim community, the Muslim nation, which was most of the Arabian Peninsula, began to rebel or break off, primarily in the appearance of false prophets, people who had at one time claimed to have allegiance with the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, but when they realized that he was sick and getting worse, they decided to call themselves prophets. However, despite the problems that were coming up with these false prophets, Prophet Muhammad wasallam sent Usama ibn Zaid with an army to northern Arabia, uh, to the area that we would consider Syria now, to take care of and intimidate the Byzantine allied Arab tribes that were there. There are several Arab tribes in northern Arabia who were allied with the Byzantine army, which is based with well, the Byzantine Empire, which is really the Eastern Roman Empire, the vestiges of the Holy Roman Empire. The Prophet did die while Osama was on his way to Syria. And after he died, Abu Bakr is ultimately chosen as the Prophet's Caliph or his successor. That is the actual translation of the word Caliph. It means successor, someone who is a successor to Prophet Muhammad wasallam. However, however, when Abu Bakr is named the caliph, most of Arabia, most of the tribes who had originally pledged allegiance with Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam canceled their alliance with Medina and Abu Bakr. So ultimately, the only area that Abu Bakr had full control of were the cities of Medina, Mecca, 
and Ta'if. They remained firm under the rule of Abu Bakr. Usama ibn Zayd, for his part, when he heard that the Prophet had died, he turned his army back around and returned to Medina. And Abu Bakr met him when he came back, but Abu Bakr was adamant that Usama ibn Zayd continue the mission that Prophet Muhammad sent him on and immediately had him return on his mission to Syria. This was against the arguments of some of the companions, particularly Omar ibn al-Khattab. He felt it was unwise for Abu Bakr to send Usama and the army back to Syria, considering the very precarious and dangerous situation that the Muslims of Medina, Mecca, and Ta'if were in. And we will see why there was such reason for Omar's concern. But before we do that, I would like to address a common misconception that many people have about these apostates or murtadin, as the Arabic word is. And these wars that Abu Bakr are, is about to embark on, they are called the wars of apostasy or the Ridda wars. That's what they're often called, the wars of apostasy. But in reality, most of these tribes didn't truly apostate. Now, there were some who definitely did follow these false prophets that came after Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And for those that followed false prophets, yes, they created a new religion basically of their own. So those people, we can definitely say that they had fully and completely left the fold of Islam. But the vast majority of the tribes who we lumped together as apostates didn't truly leave Islam. And that is something that some of the modern so-called enemies or historians or, or anti-history historians of Islam like to say, they want to make it seem that as soon as the Prophet died, the Arabs returned to their old ways, and that can't be further from the truth. The reality is, I'm not aware of any tribe that returned to idol worship, that returned to their old ways. Some of them did follow false prophets. That was a very few. There were only four known false prophets during this time that I am aware of, during this time in Arabia. Four people claimed to be prophets. The vast majority of the tribes in Arabia, the hundreds of, of tribes who had pledged allegiance to Prophet Muhammad and ultimately rebelled against Abu Bakr, they did not follow these false prophets. The primary reason that most of them canceled their allegiance with Abu Bakr and Medina was because they did not want to pay zakat. They felt that they had made an agreement with Prophet Muhammad to send him a portion of their zakat because their part of the rules of zakat is that a portion should go to Allah and his messenger. And so in more modern terms or in more basic terms, that means a portion of your zakat has to go to the central government to maintain the Islamic state. But for these people who rebelled, they felt that that had been dissolved, that agreement had been dissolved with the death of Prophet Muhammad. They hadn't made an agreement with Abu Bakr, and so they had no intention to send him any of their wealth. In many ways, these tribes had a certain ideology of Islam that is very similar to the ideology or the very similar to the way that we practice Islam today. 
You might not want to hear this, but for most of us living in Western societies, most of us Muslims who live in America and in the Western world in general, many of us, really throughout the entire world, many of us have the same ideology of a Muslim state as these tribes did. They felt more allegiance to their local leaders, like we feel so much allegiance to our local imams, our local masajid, our school of thought, our region, our brand of Islam. Most of us feel much more allegiance to that than we do to the entire Muslim ummah. People might not want to hear that, but that is the absolute truth. Furthermore, most of these tribes, they had a feeling that we are all Muslim. We are we have a spiritual connection as Muslims, but it doesn't go any further than that. And that is really the ideology that most modern Muslims have. We have a spiritual connection with each other. We are all brothers and sisters in Islam, but our connections do not go any further than that. Another reason why many of these tribes rebelled against Abu Bakr was that they were not used to having a central authority. The Arabs had lived for centuries as individual nomadic, semi-nomadic, or even settled tribes. They had lived for centuries as individual tribes, very autonomous, very independent. They were not used to having a central government, in this case, Abu Bakr in Medina, and before him, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi in Medina. They were not used to having a central government telling them what to do. And so they weren't really willing to do this sort of thing. Finally, another reason why many of them rebelled against Abu Bakr was that most of them were not fully invested in Islam. Many of these tribes had only been Muslim a few years. Many of them had only been Muslim a few months some of them had only been Muslim a few weeks. They accepted the bay'ah or the allegiance with Prophet Muhammad just shortly before he died. And so for many of these tribes, they did not really, truly, fully understand Islam. For Abu Bakr, however, he had a different ideology and understanding of what Islam is. Whereas most of these rebellious tribes, they may have felt a spiritual connection with each other and within the entire Muslim ummah, the entire Muslim world. They felt that we were all brothers. They continued to pray. They didn't mind paying zakat. They just wanted to pay to their own leaders, to their own local tribes. Abu Bakr, however, he felt that Islam was more than just a spiritual thing. He felt that we were connected or that Muslims are connected by more than just a spiritual thing, more than this invisible, immaterial, intangible, spiritual thing. He said he felt that there was more than just a spiritual connection among Muslims. He felt there was also a political connection, a financial connection and a material connection. He believed in an overarching, gigantic unified, united Islamic nation. And that's what he wanted in place. That's what the Prophet Muhammad had preached. That is what he created. That is what every indication in the Quran seems to 
identify. It seems to encourage us to create, hold, hold tightly to the rope of Allah, all those sorts of things. From Abu Bakr's perspective, that's what we are supposed to have. And this fragmented, divided thing that these tribes wanted, that's not what the Prophet intended. In short, Abu Bakr was like, we're all in this together, whether you like it or not. So Abu Bakr had to put together a five-part plan in order to unify the Muslim nation and bring these rebellious tribes back into line. And when I say five-part plan, I don't really know if he designed it this way in five parts, but studying how things turned out, I kind of believe that it was this sort of five-part plan. It went something like this. First and foremost, Abu Bakr had to protect Medina. While most of the tribes just wanted to be left alone and just wanted to go back to the way things were before Prophet Muhammad just being Muslim, there were some who did have ill intent towards Medina. There were at least three tribes who united and had made plans to invade Medina. So the first thing that Abu Bakr had to do was protect Medina and hold out until Osama could return with that army. Second part of Abu Bakr's plan, once Osama did return with the army, he needed to divide that army up into different groups and send them off into the different rebelling parts of the Arabian Peninsula. The third part of Abu Bakr's plan was to retake the central western area of the Arabian Peninsula and create a safe zone, like a buffer zone around Medina. That was a central part of the uh, that was the center, the central government of the Muslim nation. He had to create a buffer zone around there, a safe zone around Medina, so that people would know they can't get into Medina. Then he had to concentrate on the big players, the false prophets. This was the fourth part of his plan to get these false prophets out the way, culminating in an attack on Musaylam al-Kadhab, the biggest threat of all of these rebels in Yamama, way off on the other side of the peninsula in the central eastern part of the peninsula. And finally, once the central part of the Arabian Peninsula, which is known as the Najd, N-A-J-D. Once the central part of the Arabian Peninsula was pacified, he then could focus on wiping out or, let's more or less say, bring back into line the smaller rebels in the northern and southern parts of the peninsula. So let's go through Abu Bakr's plan one by one and see how he did in detail for each part. First step, as he mentioned, the first part of his plan was to protect Medina and hold out until Osama returned with the army. As he mentioned, there were three tribes that had united to invade Medina. They saw that Medina and Mecca and Ta'if had lost all of their support. Most of the tribes had abandoned them and broke their alliance with them. And they saw that he had sent the army north to Syria. These tribes viewed this as an ideal time to invade Medina and make it part of their own little kingdom. Abu Bakr heard about this and he made plans to counteract that. 
The thing is, how was he going to fight these people with no army? Well, even though most of the army had left, pretty much the entire army had left with Usama, Abu Bakr still had men who could fight in Medina. These were mostly the older companions who they had experience, but they were not really a fighting gauge. They had moved up in the quote-unquote administration. They were more or less advisors. These are these are the men like, like Abu Bakr himself, who was in his early 60s, Omar, who was approaching 50, Uthman ibn Affan, who was also in his 60s. These were men who had been through the battles years earlier with Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa These are older men now, but they, were still a, they could still fight, though. They were not decrepit older men, but they were not really the kind of people you will send out into battle. But this is all Abu Bakr had. So he cobbled together this force of these few Sahabas, and he led them himself out in a preemptive strike against these three united tribes. And he led them in a battle about 20 miles outside of Medina and took these uh, the, the forces of these tribes by surprise and attacked them and just sent them scattering off into the desert. So Abu Bakr was victorious in this preemptive strike, and this gave Medina some breathing room. It also let people know that Abu Bakr meant business, and that was another smaller factor regarding the, the, rebel, the rebels breaking their allegiance with Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was always thought of as being a soft and kind-hearted man. People thought he was a pushover because he was not a very big person. He did not speak very loud. He was soft-spoken. He was small and thin. He was also fairly old. He was known for crying in the prayers all the time. We have the story that we mentioned in the last episode where Aisha, radiallahu anha, when her husband, the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ordered for the Muslims to pray behind Abu Bakr, she was reluctant to have her father, Abu Bakr, lead the prayer because he cried so often. And so she tried to maneuver and have Omar lead the prayer instead, but the Prophet found out and stopped all that. The point is that Abu Bakr was known to be a bit of a crier in prayer. So all of these things gave people the impression that Abu Bakr was a pushover. Well, they were about to learn that he was anything but that. And this preemptive strike against these United Tribes was one of the best ways to do that. And they saw, people got the message, this man means business. Okay, so that's the first step. Protect Medina and give the Muslims some breathing room until Osama returned. So now we move on to the second step of Abu Bakr's plan. Soon as Usama returns with that army, begin the recapture of these rebellious areas. Usama was victorious in Syria, and he came back to Medina laden down, loaded down with wealth and weapons and slaves and all the things that, are, that people need to wage a successful war. And this was exactly what Abu Bakr needed. With Usama coming back with all these soldiers, first of all, that were now experienced and have fought off in foreign lands and were ready to get back into the battlefield and full of fervor, they also came back with money and wealth and weapons and slaves, and they were ready to get out in there. So now Abu Bakr had himself a real army. 
So he divided this army up into 11 groups and put one of the prophet's trusted companions as the leader for each one of these groups. But the strongest group, he reserved that for Khalid ibn Walid, the man who had been nicknamed by Prophet Muhammad wasallam as the sword of God. When the prophet of God gives you the nickname, the sword of God, you know you got some wind at your back. And so Khalid ibn Walid, he had the biggest and the strongest and the best forces, but he also had the biggest and most important job of all. We're going to get to that soon, inshallah. Each of these 11 groups, these 11 different armies, they were commissioned to go and into the different rebellious regions of Arabia and first invite the different rebels to come back to Abu Bakr's side peacefully. And Abu Bakr wrote a letter and gave a copy to each one of the leaders to read to the tribes and give them a chance to come back into the fold of Islam, come back into under Abu Bakr's rulership or authority, so to speak, peacefully before things turned violent. Now let's read this letter that Abu Bakr sent out. This is a covenant from Abu Bakr, the Caliph of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which is handed over to Qadha wa Qadha, the head of the detachment, on the eve of his departure to fight the apostates. From the commander of the detachment, I have obtained his undertaking to fear Allah the Almighty in all affairs of life inwardly and outwardly. I have ordered him to make them see reason before falling on the apostates and to stop fighting if and when they accept Islam and then make them learn their rights and duties and their rights be given and the duties due on them be taken without showing concessions whatsoever. Whoever keeps any other kind of belief after the confessing of Islam is left to Allah to be accountable to him. But those who will carry the matter to the point of fighting by rejecting Islam outright, if overpowered or defeated by the believers, their spoils are to be distributed among the Muslims after taking out the fifth part therefrom. I have also issued orders to the commanders to stop their troops from creating disturbances and taking hasty actions resulting in chaos and havoc and from admitting strangers to their detachment without their knowing perfectly their identity. I have also written them to treat the Muslims politely and show mercy to the people while camping at and decamping a place. This was basically a message from Abu Bakr giving the Murtadin, the apostates, the rebels, an opportunity to come over quietly and join them without having to do it at the point of sword. And with that, we get to the third part of Abu Bakr's plan to retake Central Arabia and create a safe zone around Medina. This was extremely important. So we're going to mostly follow the movements of Khalid ibn Walid as it was his, his movements and his actions that really turned the tide of battle in Abu Bakr's favor. And the nearest rebel to Medina was actually one of these false prophets, a man named Tuleha al-Asadi. Tuleha claimed to be a prophet even during the Prophet Muhammad wasallam's last days. He belonged to a tribe called Bani Asad, hence his name Tuleha al-Asadi, and this tribe was located in Central Arabia. Several other small tribes in the area also joined Tuleha's quest 
and that gave him a, a pretty large force. So the battle between Khalid and Tuleha took place in an area of Central Arabia called Buzaha. When Khalid arrived, however, 1,500 of the rebel tribes, 1,500 men from various rebel tribes, they turned against Tuleha and actually joined Khalid. So right then and there, off the bat, Khalid ibn Walid had a fairly large force increased even more by some of the rebels changing their minds and joining his side. So the battle took place in Muzakha, but before they actually got to fighting, Khalid invited Tuleha to a duel. And this was something that the Arabs did often when they fought. They would line their armies up, getting ready for the big battle and the big to-do. But before they did, very often the leaders would appoint a champion from their side to fight each other. This was done so that if your champion won, then that would hopefully strike fear into the enemy as well as giving encouragement and motivation to your own troops. Usually, like I said, they would choose a champion or some of one of their best fighters. Every now and then, however, the leader himself would do it. And in this instance, the leader Khalid challenged the leader of the other side, Tuleha, to a duel. They started fighting and Khalid was about to off this guy's head when he ducked and ran for cover and Tuleha ran all the way to his tent in the back of his forces, in the back of his armies, where he was nice and safe, at least for the time being. With that, there were no more duels and the two armies went at each other. And almost from the beginning, Khalid ibn Walid had the upper hand. It probably isn't very motivating to see your leader almost get killed in a duel and then run and take cover in the tent all the way in the back. So that probably didn't help to lay his forces any. In any case, Khalid ibn Walid's forces were pretty much kicking Tuleha's forces' butts, and they were getting pretty close to Tuleha's tent. Periodically, one of his soldiers would pop their head in and say, you know, we, we're getting kind of beat up out here. You, you go out of any directions, got any uh, strategy or tactics we can try to do? And Tuleha would respond that he was waiting for revelation from Allah to, to guide him. And so the soldiers would go back into the battle and they would keep coming back and say, our men are dropping like flies. Our women are being captured. We are losing the battle. Give us some direction. And Tuleha would say, I'm waiting for revelation. And he kept saying that. Meanwhile, Khalid ibn Waliz and his forces are just knocking these guys down like bowling pins. Finally, uh, Tuleha's forces, his soldiers realized that they were dealing with a fraud and most of them dropped their weapons and ran off into the desert. Those who remained wind up capitulating and surrendering to Khalid ibn Walid. Tuleha himself, he and his wife, they managed to escape before getting, before getting captured or killed themselves. And they ran off to Syria, which was still under the control of the Byzantine Empire. We will revisit Tuleha later on in this episode, inshallah. So right there, Khalid ibn Walid had brought several tribes back under Abu Bakr's command. First, Bani Asad, the tribe that Tulayh al-Asadi belonged to, as well as all of those tribes that had allied themselves with him, they all returned to Abu Bakr's side. So that was the first victory for Khalid ibn Walid, and he continued his push west through the Najd, through Central Arabia, 
towards his primary target, Musaylam al-Kadhab. And Khalid just went on a tear. He just tore through Central Arabia, knocking down rebel after rebel after rebel. Everywhere he fought, the rebel tribes capitulated. He fought in Ghamra, in Nakra, in Zafar. And everywhere he went, he won. He never lost a single battle. Before long, he had arrived at Buta, which was just outside of Yamama. Yamama is the area that was the home base for Bani Bani Hu. Yamama was the home base for Bani Hanifa, which was the tribe that Musaylam al-Kadhan belonged to. But before he got to Yamama, he got to Buta. And so Khalid ibn Walid came to Buta, where the leader was a rebel named Malik ibn Nuwayr. This was perhaps the most controversial part of Khalid ibn Walid's campaign against the Muratadin. First, let's talk about this rebel leader. The city, once again, is called Buta. Their leader is Malik ibn Nuwayr. Now, Malik, he used to be a tax collector, a zakat collector for Prophet Muhammad wasallam, while the Prophet was still alive. However, reports came in that after the Prophet died, Malik expressed joy. He rejoiced at hearing of the Prophet's death, and then he returned the zakat to the people whom he had collected it from. This appears to be an indication of rebellion, of apostasy, because first of all, he was happy the prophet died, and secondly, he gave the zakat back to the people who he collected it from, essentially saying, this doesn't belong to Abu Bakr, this belongs to you. Another thing that seemed to put Malik ibn Nuwaydah in the camp of the apostates was that he had made a peace agreement with one of the false prophets, a false prophetess, a woman named Sajah. We'll talk about her a little bit soon, but all of these things, being being happy about the prophet dying, returning the zakat, making an agreement with this false prophetess, all this seemed to indicate that Malik ibn Nuwaydah was a murtad, an apostate. However, he never fully or openly rebelled against Abu Bakr. In any case, Khalid ibn Walid attacked the city of Buta and easily defeated Malik's forces and took Malik and his wife captive. And now we're about to get to the controversy. Now, there are some who say that Malik ibn Nuwaydah actually returned the zakat because he thought the deal with Prophet Muhammad was canceled. He never had a chance to confirm or deny any any kind of agreement with Abu Bakr. He thought the, the Prophet died, and so there's no reason to send zakat anymore. That's what some people say. And the point remains that he never, he doesn't seem to have fully rebelled or openly rebelled against Abu Bakr. So even Khalid ibn Walid wasn't sure if this guy was truly a rebel or not. Of course, Malik ibn Nuwaydah, while he was a prisoner of Khalid ibn Walid, argued for himself that he had never turned against Abu Bakr. So Khalid ibn Walid wasn't sure what to believe. So he decided to just hold on to this guy until things became clear. However, Khalid ibn Walid ordered his soldiers to ease Malik ibn Nuwaydah's thirst. And that 
was misinterpreted by his soldiers to be execute him, which they did. Malik ibn Nuwaydah was killed. And that's part of the controversy. The next part is even more controversial. A few days after Malik ibn Nuwaydah was executed, Khalid ibn Walid married his wife. When he did that, many of the soldiers, many of the companions under Khalid's command, they broke off from Khalid. They were very upset and shocked by what happened. For one thing, it wasn't 100% sure. No one was 100% sure whether Malik ibn Nuwayla had actually rebelled against Abu Bakr. No one, they were, they, that was still being debated. They were still discussing that. And so it wasn't fully, fully known to anyone. And then to top it all off, for, for Khalid ibn Walid to have this man executed, even if it was by accident, to have him executed, that just made things even worse. And then on top of that, he goes and marries his wife just a few days later. Oh no, some of these companions were very upset about this. And so they broke off from Khalid ibn Walid and returned to Medina and reported his actions to Abu Bakr. Many of the companions back in Medina were also shocked to hear what Khalid ibn Walid did, especially Omar ibn Khattab. He was very upset and he encouraged Abu Bakr to remove Khalid ibn Walid from his post as head general of the Muslim armies. However, Abu Bakr was a, a more reasonable man who wanted to hear both sides of the story. Furthermore, Khalid ibn Walid was pretty successful out there in the field. So he had Khalid ibn Walid recalled back to Medina in order for him to hear his case. Khalid explained what happened and Abu Bakr ultimately decided that Khalid was not at fault and that it was an accident. He paid the blood money for Malik's Malik's death from the Muslim treasury. Khalid ibn Walid then returned to the battlefield to continue the war against the rebels. Now, there are some who say that Khalid ibn Walid was absolutely at fault for what he did. Primarily, these arguments come from the Shia. The Shiites, as we, as we call them, they argue that even if his execution was a mistake, even if it was unintended by Khalid ibn Walid, he is still supposed to wait the three-month idda period, a waiting period for a divorced or widowed woman. And Khalid ibn Walid didn't wait three months. He barely waited three days before he married her. That's the argument of the Shiites. For those who say that Khalid ibn Walid wasn't at fault, they have to base it upon the fact or upon the idea or they have to base it upon the opinion, that's more or less correct, the opinion that Malik ibn Nuwaydah was a murtad. He was a rebel against Abu Bakr, which removed him from the fold of Islam, meaning that his wife was now not necessarily a, a widow of a Muslim man. She was actually a captive, in which case she was a slave or right-hand possession of Khalid ibn Walid, being a captive of a, of a defeated force, and therefore he could easily free her and marry her. That's the other side, other side of the argument. Ultimate, ultimately, we're going to have to leave this one in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Khalid ibn Walid returned to the battlefield and he headed for the final and biggest threat of them all, Yamama and Musaylam al-Kadhab. Yamama, don't say Yamama, Yamama was the area in the region that was a home base for Banu Hanifa, which is the tribe that Musaylam al-Kadhab, Musaylam the liar, belonged to. 
Now, we mentioned earlier about Sajah. She was a false prophetess who married Musaylam al-Kadhab, and they combined their forces and their wealth together. However, on her way to joining up with Khalid ibn Walid, her forces were intercepted, and they were mostly defeated by Khalid ibn Walid, and she wound up running off for her life and pretty much finished her life in silence, not really bothering anyone. However, during this time that Khalid was fighting his way through Central Arabia, Musaylam al-Kadhab was making preparations. He wasn't just sitting around twirling his thumbs. He was doing everything he could to prepare for this upcoming battle against Khalid ibn Walid. Abu Bakr, for his part, also was not sitting around twiddling his thumbs. While Khalid ibn Walid was fighting through Central Arabia, Abu Bakr sent a small force, a small light force, with another companion named Ikrama ibn Abu Jahal. Yes, Ikrama was the son of Abu Jahal, and but Ikrama accepted Islam after Mecca was captured by the Muslims and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, however, Ikrama was at was one of Abu Bakr's most trusted advisors and was also one of his best and most capable generals. So Ikrama led a small force out to to uh, watch over Yamama. Their orders from Abu Bakr were not to attack nor engage with Musaylim al-Kadab's forces. Ikrama was just supposed to stand watch over Yamama and watch Musaylim al-Kadab's movements from a distance. With this light force from Ikrama in the distance, it was hoped that it would cause confusion for Musaylim al-Kadab because he would definitely see them, but he wouldn't know exactly how many people there were. He didn't know how far Khalid ibn Walid was, where they were, how far they were, how, how soon would they be reaching Yamama, how many forces he had with them. So th- it was meant to cause a bit of confusion for Musaylim al-Kadab and keep him on edge. Furthermore, it would give Muslims an opportunity to watch what he was doing and to send reports so Khalid ibn Walid himself could be prepared and so, so that Abu Bakr could plan accordingly. Ikrama, however, got impatient and he saw an opportunity to attack Musaylim al-Kadhab and he went ahead and did so against the orders of Abu Bakr. And Ikrama was soundly defeated. He barely managed to escape with his life, and he had to run back to Medina. Abu Bakr was most likely very much frustrated with this turn of events, so he sent another force out there with another companion named Shurahbil with the same orders. Go out there. Go out to your mama. Watch over them. Let me know what's going on, but do not attack Musaylam al-Kadhab. Shirah Bil had the same orders and he did the same thing Ikrama did. He got impatient and attacked Musaylim al-Kadhab without orders from Abu Bakr and he was also soundly defeated. And these two victories by Musaylim al-Kadhab helped him have, uh, gave him a bit of motivation because now he had beaten the Muslims twice. In addition to that, Musaylima was making alliances. He had already, already made one alliance with the false prophetess Sajah. He had also made other alliances with several tribes in the area of Yamama. So Musaylima was making alliances. He was signing treaties. He was gathering his resources. 
And on top of that, he had already beaten the Muslims twice already. So he was pretty confident that he could handle anything Abu Bakr had to throw at him. So he was very confident when Khalid ibn Walid arrived in Yamama and Musaylam al-Kadhab, when he saw his forces, he was probably even more confident because according to the sources, Musaylam al-Kadhab had 40,000 soldiers under his command with all of these alliances he had made, whereas Khalid ibn Walid only had 13,000. Now, the thing about some of these reports and numbers of soldiers you got to kind of take them with a grain of salt because, first of all, they were written hundreds of years after the events took place, and they were also written by Muslims. And while I don't, I'm not saying the Muslim historians necessarily lied, but of course, they would probably do things to make the Muslims seem more heroic or try to put the Muslims in as best of a light as possible. So while I do believe that Khalid ibn Walid was outnumbered by Musaylam al-Kadhab, I'm not so sure if it was necessarily 40,000 to 13,000. That's a that's a, big, a bit of a lopsided engagement, if you ask me. But nonetheless, certainly Musaylam al-Kadhab had the upper hand, at least on paper. He, he most likely did have a larger force than Khalid ibn Walid, he was located in his in his hometown, whereas Khalid had a, a long supply chain all the way back to Medina. They really, he had no supply chain back to Medina. He was they were hundreds of miles away from Medina in a time of no cars and planes and stuff. Really, just camels and horses through rough deserts. So the the only way that Khalid's army could survive was to live off of the tribes and live off the land that they captured and conquered. That's pretty much what they did. So they didn't really have the comfort of unlimited supplies that Musaylam al-Kadhab most likely had being in his home base. In any case, the two forces finally met and Khalid ibn Walid launched several attacks against Musaylam al-Kadhab's army. And they hit his army hard and they hit him really, really hard and caused heavy casualties on Musaylama's side. However, they were not able to break through the ranks of Musaylama. They were not able to get through. And even though they inflicted heavy damage on Musaylama's army, the Muslims under Khalid's, under Khalid's uh, authority also suffered heavy casualties. And while I may not be too comfortable with the 40,000 to 13,000 number, certainly Khalid ibn Walid was outnumbered by Musaylam al-Kadham. So even if both forces lost 5,000 soldiers, and if we do go ahead and take that 40,000 to 13,000 number, that would be pretty hard on Khalid ibn Walid, much more so than it would be on Musaylam al-Kadhab. Whereas Khalid ibn Walid, losing 5,000 would be over a third of his army. For Khalid ibn Walid, it would only be about an eighth. And so he could absorb much more damage than Khalid could. And they fought in this way pretty much to a stalemate throughout the first day of battle, finally retreating to their own sides when it just got too dark to fight. Khalid realized that he had to do something different. He couldn't keep going blow for blow with Musaylama. He was not going to last if he did that. He couldn't just trade life for life and soldier for soldier and blow for blow against this guy. He was going to run out of soldiers if he did that. 
He had to do something to really turn the tide in his favor, and he had to do it quick. Once again, they were far away from home, far away from Medina. So on the, on the next day of fighting, Khalid ibn Walid decided to reorganize his soldiers into a different way. And he had them reorganized this time instead of the previous manner he had them organized by duty and by role and by weapon. He had them organized by tribe. This was a way to give them more motivation. When they were, when the soldiers were fighting next to their, their brothers and cousins and fathers and uncles from the same tribe, they would be much more inclined to fight harder and stronger because nobody wanted to be the losing tribe. And everyone wanted their own tribe to have a certain level of honor and nobility and victory. And no one, once again, wanted to be humiliated. So this seemed to turn the battle and now they were able to finally push through and Musaylama's forces retreated inside this walled garden and locked the gate. So Musaylaman and his forces were locked inside of this walled garden and the Muslims were locked outside. Now Khalid, he wanted to end this thing now, but he had to get past this gate and there was no going out and chopping down a tree and creating a battering ram at this point of time. They had to get into that garden and handle this thing quickly. One of the companions, his name was Thabit ibn Qais, under the command of the authority of Khalid ibn Walid, volunteered to be thrown over the wall. Now, Thabit ibn Qais was a, a bit of a dramatic guy. He often wore a red headband with an ostrich feather in his turban. And he was like, throw me over the wall and I'll take care of business. I'll get this gate open. Now, Unfortunately, we don't have film coverage of what actually happened, so we're just going to have to kind of imagine it. But essentially, you can just try to imagine Khalid's forces taking this guy with his ostrich feather sticking out of his cap, throwing him over the wall into this crowd of enemy soldiers, fighting his way through all of them until he finally got to the gate with arrows and cut marks all over him and throwing it open and in come rushing the Muslim forces and the battle is on. The Muslim forces rush into this garden and now it is just a fight to the death because this garden was a walled garden and the room was very limited. You have thousands and thousands of men fighting. There's barely any room to maneuver. There were heavy casualties on both sides. It became known later on as Hadikatul Maut, the Garden of Death. These two forces were fighting just claw to claw, toe to toe. Everyone just crammed against each other and it was just a, a death fest. Yes, killing and fighting in the most brutal and horrible manner because there's no time for strategy now. There's no room for strategy. There's no room for tactics. It's just kill or be killed. But Khalid ibn Walid, once again, he realized that he could not last like this. His forces, while they may put some serious damage on Musaylama's forces, they could not withstand this kind of heavy, close hand-to-hand combat like this. They would eventually just run out of soldiers. We had to find a way to put an end to this quickly. So we gathered around him the strongest and best fighters 
and they made like a little knot basically like a little a little group of men with swords and shields and spears and colleague was at the center of this whole thing we are going to fight straight through this thing until we get to Musaylim al-Kadhab and that's what they did this small band of the best fighters under Khalid's command just pierced straight through the crowd like Moses parting the waves to the Red Sea. They just cut their way, their way straight through. Just not trying to worry about strategy, not trying to worry about all the things going all around them. Just fight your way through, kill all the enemy in front of you, cut them down and get to the other end no matter what until we get to Musaylima. And they did exactly that and finally broke through at the other end of the garden and there was Musaylima hiding behind a rock. And the first one to attack him was a former slave, a former Ethiopian slave named Wahshi ibn Harb, who was also responsible for the death of the Prophet's uncle, Hamza, during the Battle of Uhud. He killed the Prophet's uncle with a spear, but now he had become Muslim and he wanted to redeem himself. And with the very same spear that had killed the Prophet's uncle, he took it and threw it at Musaylim al-Kadhab and he went, went straight through his middle and pinned him to the ground, impaled him on the spear to the ground. And then Thabit bin Qais, the guy with the ostrich feather who went over the wall, he jumped out and lopped off Musaylim's head and the battle was over. The forces under Musaylim, they saw that their quote-unquote prophet was dead. They lost their motivation and the Muslims wiped them out. And the battle of Yamama was over and Banu Hanifa was back under the command of Abu Bakr. But it wasn't over yet. There's still some more to go. So now Central Arabia has been returned to the Muslim nation. But there's more to go on. In Bahrain, to the far east, there were some tribes who had apostated and turned against Abu Bakr were there others who remained loyal to Abu Bakr? These two different tribes, they wound up fighting each other without any sort of intervention from Abu Bakr at all. Ultimately, however, those tribes who were loyal to Abu Bakr wound up being successful and victorious, and Bahrain was put back under the Muslim nation as well. Now let's move further south in Oman, in what is southeastern Arabia. There, three of Abu Bakr's forces, three of his companions who had their own forces, they converged on in Oman and they fought against the rebels there. And they were also victorious. So now southeastern Arabia has been returned to the Muslim nation. So we have the central Arabia. All of central Arabia is back under Abu Bakr's control. And now southeastern Arabia is back under the Muslim control. And all that's left is Southern Arabia and Southwestern Arabia, what we know of today as Yemen. So our next stop is Mahra, and which is also in Southern Arabia. And the rebellious tribes there actually wound up fighting each other. They're, they Neither one of them wanted to be the Abu Bakr, so they decided to fight each other. Don't know why. Anyway, when Ikrama and his forces arrived in Mahra, 
one of these re- rebellious tribes saw an opportunity. They said, well, we were wrong. We're with you. <laughs> we're under, we want to be the Abu Bakr. We're going to join your side. And so they, all of them, Ikrama and this formerly rebellious tribe, they all joined together and beat the stuffing out of the last tribes, the last few tribes that remained rebellious in Mahra. And now all that was left was Yemen in southwestern Arabia where there was a previous false prophet, a guy named Aswad al-Ansi. He had actually rebelled against the prophet during his lifetime. He claimed prophethood during the prophet's lifetime. The prophet sent a companion named Feroz down there to deal with him. Feroz beat uh, Aswad al-Ansi and put that area of Yemen back under the prophet's control. But when the prophet died, these people who supported Aswad al-Ansi, they rose up against Feroz and the Muslim government and overthrew him and kicked them out. And those Muslim civilians who stayed in Yemen, they were tortured and persecuted by the followers of Aswad al-Ansi, the false prophet. So while Khalid ibn Walid was fighting through Central Arabia, Abu Bakr sent another companion named Muhajir with a force to to Yemen to quell this rebellion. But Muhajir was outnumbered, so all he could do was just barely hold out against the rebels, and he had to wait until Ikrama joined him. Ikrama was coming from the east, from Oman, down through southern Arabia, and finally he joined up with Muhajir in Yemen, and they combined their forces, and they were able to defeat the rebels. But Yemen is a very rough country, lots of rough terrain, mountains and hills, and lots of places to hide. And so quelling Yemen was not so easy. While they were able to defeat the followers of of the false prophet Aswal al-Ansi, there were several smaller tribes who had rebelled, and they weren't so easy to get. It wasn't that they were necessarily great fighters. It was just that they were just hard to get to because of the terrain, and there were so many of them. But little by little, the Muslim armies went from tribe to tribe and mountain to cave and just fought through them one by one by one, just clearing them out until finally all of Yemen had been subjugated and brought back into the Muslim nation. Now, there were a few rebels in northern Arabia near Syria, but these were also put down very easily. So ultimately, in less than a year, all of the rebels had been defeated and Abu Bakr had solidified his control over Arabia. These former apostate tribes, these Muratadin, they were punished severely by Abu Bakr. Not punished in the way of death. Those who surrendered and admitted their faults, he didn't kill them, but he did do his best to humiliate them. For one thing, they had to turn in their weapons and That was partially done perhaps to humiliate them, but perhaps also as a way to make sure these guys didn't try to rise up against Abu Bakr again. And to further drive the point home, they were ordered to openly declare, the leaders of all these rebellious tribes, they were ordered to openly declare that their dead were in hell while the dead from the Muslim side were in heaven. And as a final insult, Uh, Maybe that's the wrong word, but as a final insult, a final way to just let them know that uh, what you did was really, really bad. These rebellious tribes, they were forbidden from ever taking part in any 
future Muslim battles. It's like Abu Bakr saying that you just can't be trusted to fight with me, to fight on my side. You may have admitted that you were wrong, but I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to trust the Muslim nation in your treacherous, traitorous hands. Ultimately, what happened is that Abu Bakr had an excellent strategy. He planned this thing out very, very well. And furthermore, he had some very good generals running this strategy for him. And Khalid ibn Walid and Ikrama and several others who are not as well known. These guys were excellent generals. And they put this thing out like almost to perfection. It was a great strategy. It was an amazing strategy over some very rough, tough terrain against an enemy force that was humongous in numbers. However, they just weren't unified. And it was an amazing thing how Abu Bakr was able to bring these guys back into line. Now, we mentioned Tuleha al-Asadi. He was way off in Syria. He ran off after he was defeated by Khalid ibn Walid in Buzakhan. Tuleha ran to Syria with his wife, and he stayed there until many years later, and the Muslims captured Syria, and Tuleha returned to Islam and admitted his fault. Furthermore, he also joined the Muslim army and wound up being martyred under the caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab. Goes to show that a person can start off as a false prophet and wind up being a martyr. Ultimately, only Allah knows how we will all turn out. However, for the story of Abu Bakr, we are almost to the end. The Muslim empire was once again reunited under Abu Bakr. He can now turn his attention towards Syria in the northwest and the Persians in the northeast. The Byzantines were in Syria. The Persians were in the northeast in Iraq. And they were watching things very, very carefully. In the next episode, we'll talk about the Muslim expansion into Syria and Iraq. And we'll also talk about the caliphate of Omar ibn al-Khattab. The next episode of the Islamic History Podcast. Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that entertaining and interesting and educational. And I first and foremost must apologize for the last episode I was actually kind of sick when I recorded that, so I really didn't have the energy. I was just coming over a sore throat, and it was a rough one. So if it seemed kind of deflated, it was because I felt like crap. Anyway, continuing on with other things happening in my life, like you really need to know about that. Most important thing I want to tell you right now, other than my previous apology, is that I am currently working a full-time job. Yes, 40 hours a week. Alhamdulillah. Gives me the means to provide for my family. I got a wife and five kids here. I mean, goodness gracious, seven people. Anyway, I got to work a full-time job. This kind of makes it difficult for me to squeeze these podcasts in on the weekend. And I had really planned on having all of this done for you during that six-week hiatus when I was just giving you like khutbahs and stuff like that. During that six-week period, I really planned to have all this taken care of, but there were two things that got away. First, I went to some very serious financial constraints or straits, I think the word is. Anyway, finances were bad in the Ismail household, and I had to really focus on getting some money into this house, into this family. 
And that's why I wound up getting this full-time job. And so the full-time job, alhamdulillah, it eases the financial stress that I was going through. And believe me, it was pretty rough, all right? But the problem is, and it's a good problem to have, I guess, is that it really limits the time that I have to put into the podcast. So I must apologize. I will, of course, try to put these these episodes out on a regular weekly basis. But I'm going to be honest with you right now. There's a very good chance that I might not be as consistent as I was last season, where you pretty much got a, a new podcast every single week. I don't know if I can do this this week. I'm going to try my best, inshallah. For right now, however, however, just make dua that, first of all, Allah accepts this from me because this is, this is free Islamic education. Secondly, that I can continue doing this and get better as I go along. Anyway, enough about me. I know you want to know about this podcast. Next episode, inshallah, just heard about the the wars of apostasy. In the next episode, we're going to cover the end of Abu Bakr's caliphate, the end of his life also, and the beginning of Omar's caliphate. We're going to also discuss the beginning of what's known as the Muslim conquest. Some like to say the Arab conquest. I don't like doing that. I don't like saying the Arab conquest. This is a Muslim conquest because everybody who was involved in this was an Arab. Yeah, the majority were at first, yes. But over a while, after some time, it stopped being a full Arab conquest. It became a really a Muslim conquest. And really, anyway, we'll get into that later on, inshallah, as you'll see. But this conquest includes the conquest of Syria and driving the Byzantines out of northern Arabia and the Levant. The, the Levant is the, the area that we know of today as Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, Jerusalem, parts of Syria. That's known as the Levant. So the Muslims eventually con- conquer this area and drive the Byzantines out. Also, we're going to cover the annihilation and the destruction, the complete capture of the Persian Empire, which has stood around for hundreds, maybe over thousands of years before Islam came around, but the Muslims completely conquered it. So it's going to be a very interesting episode, and we have lots of great things coming up, inshallah. In the meantime, please support this podcast. Best way to support it, I won't say the best way, the easiest way to support it. I'll tell you the best way in a few seconds. The easiest way to support this podcast is to first subscribe to it. If you have an iPhone or an Android phone or a Windows phone or any sort of smartphone, you can subscribe to it. If you listen to this on a desktop, you can still, or a laptop, whatever kind of computer, you can still subscribe through iTunes. So please subscribe to the show. If you're listening to this for the first time or second time, whatever, or you're not subscribed to it, subscribe to the show. Very easy to do. If you have an iPhone, you can subscribe through Apple's podcast app. That's the easiest thing to do. If you have an Android phone, it's a little bit more difficult. Google and and podcast don't work too well, but you can still subscribe. All you have to do is get a podcast app. There's Pocket Cast. There's Podcast. There's so many podcast apps out there. Stitcher is another one. Find a podcast app that you like and subscribe to the show 
through your podcast app. Trust me, Islamic History Podcast is on pretty much every single podcast app that I can think of. I've tried my best to make sure we are part of all of them. So you should be able to find some way to subscribe to the, to the show through your Android phone. If you have uh, an, um, a, a Windows phone, it's a little bit more difficult, but you can still subscribe. Go through the podcast app on your Windows phone and type in the URL for this show. And if you don't know about it, just go to IslamicLearningMaterials.com or go to IslamicHistory.ninja and you will see the RSS feed. Copy that into your Windows phone and you can subscribe to this show. So that's the best thing to do. Easiest thing to do, not best. Easiest thing to do. The next thing you can do is if you are subscribed, even if you're not subscribed, rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps boost the show a little bit in the rankings and get it out to more people and just makes this more available to more people. Apple looks at rankings and likes and reviews and those sort of things. Give this show a good five-star review. Give me a good rating. If you don't like the show, then don't review it, okay? Don't give me a bad review. Keep it to yourself, all right? But if you do like and give give this show a good review, and that is another way that you can help support the Islamic History Podcast, once again, completely free. But the best way to support this podcast is through a little bit of money. I hate to say it like that, but yeah, a little bit of money. All right. You can support the show by joining the Islamic Learning Materials Club. Just go to IslamicLearningMaterials.club. It is a very low price, $1 a month, $1 for the first month, and then $7.99 for every month after that. If you can't afford it, if it's too much for you, then it's too much. I understand that. Then do one of the other things. But if you can't afford it, then do that. There are good videos and lessons and lectures and khutbahs and all sorts of stuff on there. Inshallah, you find it very beneficial. All right. So those are the things you can do to help out. And if you want the show notes to this episode, once again, go to IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Ridda, R-I-D-D-A. IslamicLearningMaterials.com slash Ridda for the show notes. And with that... And so with that, we are going to ride out with Dawood Warnsby's Nasheed. Don't talk to me about Muhammad. You will love this song if you don't know it already. Please listen to the words. Until next week, Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruka wa notubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. It would be such a pleasure to have you come along with me. I accept your gracious offer of kindness and company. But as we walk along, young man, and as you help me with my load, I have only one request as we travel down this road. Don't talk to me about Mohammed. Because of him there is no peace and I have trouble in my mind So don't talk to me about Mohammed And as we walk along together we will get along just fine As we walk along together we will get along 
That man upsets me so, so much more than you could know. I hear of his name and reputation everywhere I go. Though his family and his clan once knew him as an honest man, he's dividing everyone with his claim that God is one. So don't talk to me about Mohammed. Because of him there is no peace and I have trouble in my mind. So don't talk to me about Mohammed. And as we walk along together, we will get along just fine. As we walk along together, we will get along. He's misled all the weak ones and the poor ones and the slaves. They think they've all found wealth and freedom. Following his ways, he's corrupted all the youth with his twisted brand of truth. Convince them that they all are strong, giving them somewhere to belong. So don't talk to me about Muhammad. Because of him, there is no peace, and I have trouble in my mind. So don't talk to me about Muhammad. As we walk along together, we will get along just fine. As we walk along together, we will get along. Thank you now, young man. You've really been so kind. Your generosity and smile are very rare to find. Let me give you some advice, since you've been so very nice. From Mohammed, stay away. Don't heed his words or emulate his way, and don't talk about Mohammed. You will never have true peace, and trouble is all you will find. So don't talk about Mohammed. And as you travel down life's road, you will get along just fine. Now, before we part and go. If it's all right, just the same. May I ask, my dear young man, who are you? What's your name? Forgive me. What was that? Your words weren't very clear. My ears are getting old. Sometimes it's difficult to hear. It's truly rather funny, though I'm sure I must be wrong. But I thought I heard you said your name is Mohammed. Muhammad. Upon you I pray for peace, for you have eased my troubled mind. Oh, talk to me, Muhammad. As we walk along together, we will get along just fine. As I travel down life's road, I will get along just fine.